Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step recovery programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saves lives. This week I'm interviewing Christina and Jeff via a Zoom recording, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Christina and Jeff are members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're going to be sharing how AA has helped them to recover from alcoholism. So, Christina, we usually talk about you know growing up and the things that influenced us in our early lives, and you know what family life was like. So, what was um, what was your life like growing up? It wasn't really a whole lot of fun. I enjoyed myself at school. I had a, a great time at school, making friends. Uh, the home life wasn't particularly happy. There was a, a broken marriage and uh, new family members brought in and that was very different. But we got our, our meals. There was just nothing there. There was no communication or happiness or fun that sort of went on. There was, it was always very strict discipline. So there was never anywhere to go with that. You just had to stay on the on the lines of what, was pointed out to you what you had to do and you had to do it. Were you a naughty kid or were you a good kid? I thought I was perfect. My mother didn't. Yeah, I actually was one of those people who thought I was dropped in the basket beside my mother uh, by angels because I definitely didn't fit in anywhere in my family or anywhere else to do with the, the family life. So... I think I was very disciplined and I was got to the point where I was too afraid to put a foot wrong because it always involved punishment, disciplinary action, and that was with a strap usually. What was life like at school and was that a sort of a refuge for you? Yes, it was a refuge actually. It was good. I made a lot of friends at school, uh, very happy at school, but even though I didn't do well at school at all, any of the subjects, the only thing I really did well was English, learning to read and write. And I do think that was to do with the fact of the way it was taught back then because it was very repetitive and disciplined. So, but anything else, no, I didn't, didn't do well at all. And I left school when I was 14, just 14 and went to work. So were you popular at school? Uh, Pretty popular, yeah. I was a clown. I was always making people laugh and doing silly things, always the the brave one that got into trouble and sent out of the class. And so I was sort of seen as a bit of a hero, even though I was a bit of a terror, I think. (laughs) Um, So what about your family? How did you fit in with your brothers and sisters? Not particularly well. I, I didn't have a bad relationship. It, as I said, it was a split family. So I only got to see half of my family on school holidays uh, when they came to stay. It was through a broken marriage. But my, my stepfather's first wife married my real biological father. So there was a lot of tension and fights in amongst that. And we were always, I was always in the middle of that somehow. 
And I was always the one that got into trouble for doing things that I don't even remember doing, but I did. Yeah, I was a bit of a troublemaker, I think, at home as well. But not, not, not game enough to open my mouth most of the time. Okay. So was it, was it a busy family or lots of kids? There was a lot of kids, yeah. There was a lot of kids at, at my house, like, and of our family. And then we had a lot of relatives come down from the country and stay at our place for various reasons, usually medical. So, and borders, there was always people coming and going. And, yeah, just very busy household it was, actually. But I never really fitted in there anywhere. Okay. Uh, so what about secondary school? Did it change moving up to secondary school? Uh, the work got harder. I got disciplined more, but uh, it was an all-girls school, but not really. I still had friends. I, I had a group of friends that I stuck with pretty much all the way, but I was only there until second form, really, and then I went off. I was taken out to go to work, so I didn't really have a, a big life at school. Okay. So what was it like going to work that early? Uh, well, I started work earlier than that, actually. I started work about 11 at different places, like shoved off into little jobs of at fish and chip shops in the back room and doing uh, peeling potatoes and that. So uh, it was all right, actually. It was good. The only problem was that, like I said to you earlier, that I did start stealing and that wasn't a very good thing because I was a very moral person, but I started stealing early because I didn't have any money. I had to give it all in at home. So that was something that I felt was a, a blur on my character and I kept it a secret, of course. So it was, it was hard, but it was all right. It was a refuge away from home. Yeah, okay. So did you start drinking in your teens? Only once when I was about 15 or 16 and I bought a bottle of Brandovino one night and we drank it on the way to the dance and I honestly didn't like what it did. I, I honestly hated the feeling of it. And I, I swore I probably wouldn't, never even gave it a thought after that until later in life, until I'd married and had children. So why did you buy the bottle in the first place? Just to try, just to be adventurous. Everyone else was doing it. So I thought, well, I might as well too. But I didn't like the way it made me feel, actually. It made me feel quite sick. Yeah, a lot of alcoholics talk about it giving them a lot of confidence. So it had no effect on you? Not at all, no. In fact, it took away my confidence because I couldn't dance. That was one thing I did love to do was dance. And I couldn't do it because I lost all my coordination with it. I lost control of my body. So that was one of the factors that said to me that I wasn't going to do that again. Yeah, mm. wise move. Yeah. <laughs> I okay, should have Jeff. listened to the younger me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, okay, Jeff. Um, so how, how was early life for you? It was great. You know, I, um, looking back on it and, um, you know, since I've been in the fellowship, I've discovered that I was one of the lucky ones. You know, I had, um, had a calm, secure, um, loving um, family situation, you know, um, my parents got on. Uh, I got on with my, you know, brothers and sisters. I just had a normal, you know, uh, normal childhood, and I, to to such an extent that I thought that was the way everyone else in the world 
lived and, and I later to find out that I was in fact one of the one of the lucky ones you know um, mum tells me I was a bit of a difficult kid I think I was a bit I was a bit shy I was a bit frightened I was a bit withdrawn and and a bit you know typical alcoholic oversensitive you know where yeah. you're often told where you know minus a couple of layers of skin and uh, you know easily easily hurt and 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 there was the beginning of you know having trouble fitting into you know dealing with life on on life's terms even though i had you know nothing to be nothing to complain about nothing to run away from um, i still wanted to run away from it so what was life like at school as far as friends go uh look i i, I had friends um, it was just normal to me i was um, you know i was a literally and figuratively a bit of a boy scout you know i was a good you know a good student i was a sort of uber nerd and uh but look i got on with i got on with people fine i got bullied a little bit because i did weird things like writing poetry which was not the not the dumb thing in new zealand in you know in the 1960s it was a much better idea to be playing rugby and uh, and i completely failed on that front made up for yeah did you did you spend a lot of time alone? Were you sort of trying to separate yourself from other people, or were you a social person? Uh, yeah, probably. You know, um, I, I did a lot of reading. I, I dived into um, the children's library and read myths and legends from all over the place. You know, the, the sort of precursor to fantasy novels, and and I suppose that was a bit of an early early escape. I was busy uh, reading about. When did your interest in drugs or alcohol begin? fairly early on i i think um i um i remember seeing um a cover of life magazine and it would have been maybe 63 maybe 65 i was um what so i would have been 10 or 11 and uh, there was a story about boys my age smoking marijuana and it all sounded fearfully attractive to me and i couldn't wait to to get hold of this i used to i used to wonder where all those pushers were who were supposed to be hanging around the school gates they hadn't turned up in dunedin at that stage so i had to go without for years and years so it was you know i i had an early interest in getting away from it getting out of it and um so how did you get introduced to alcohol uh look i honestly don't remember it was all all very probably, um, you know, sneaking nips of dad's whiskey. Um, and then, you know, the standard kind of, you know, drinking half a dozen beers at, at 15 before going to a party. You know, it, it was, uh, it seemed, it felt like a rite of passage, you know, um, especially tr trying to buy trying to buy a half a dozen beers when you're 15 and look 12. Uh, but we all managed somehow. And, uh, and I never got the feeling that I was doing, you know, something out of the ordinary. And I, ne I didn't, um, like Christina, I didn't particularly enjoy it. It, it, um, it was just something you did. But clearly, it set something going in my brain that said, you know, any time you want to get away from, you know, things, this is the way to do it. Okay. Um, so did you seek out alcohol as, a, as an enjoyment? Yes, I suppose. I, you know, I, it was just, it was there. Uh, uh, I remember the, the great delights in my last year at school of, you know, we, we'd finished exams and just 
getting drunk and rolling around the school grounds and rolling into town then rolling back again you know just getting getting what we thought of as being nicely drunk so yeah yeah i mean i did seek out the enjoyment of that and um you know it, and it didn't take long it the the thing about you know addiction is the it it, it can it can sneak up on you it, it, i don't remember it I never sort of had that, oh, I must go and get drunk feeling or I must go and find some drugs. But it was just like, you know, here's, you know, um, you know, I, I went to university when I was 17 and, you know, alcohol was freely available. It was, um, you know, I was um, propped up at the bar, at, you know, at um, orientation week, you know, at 17, drinking, you know, rather more scotch than was good for me. So it was just, you know, it became a part of my life. Yeah, okay, I understand that. Uh, well, listen, we might take a quick break. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, Programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from eleven AM on Community Radio 3CR. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Are you interested in listening to one of our many podcasts? Then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree. There you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Alternatively, you can just call 3CR on 03 9419 uh, today I'm talking with Christina and Jeff, and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, so, Christina, um, we sort of left you um, growing up, getting involved in dances and things. So, and what was what was the next part of your life? Uh, well, um, I, I dated a lot when I was younger. I enjoyed going out dancing. That was probably my best thing to do. Uh, alcohol didn't come into it. I, I had, I didn't really have any plans on getting married. I suppose in my head, I'd always lived in this fantasy that this guy was going to come along on a white charger and take me off and would marry and live happily ever after. But um, it didn't work out that way. My mum was a little bit cruel, and she used to say to me that if any guy ever asked me to marry him, I should grab the opportunity because it wouldn't happen again. I'd never get another one. So the first guy that asked me to marry him when I was 20, I said yes. And we got married almost oh, probably about nine months after we'd met. And as soon as I got married, I knew it wasn't for me. I knew I that wasn't something I could do 
comfortably. I felt like I was in handcuffs. I married a very dominant, controlling man who was older than I was and uh, it was a disaster from the very word go. I knew on my honeymoon that I had made a big mistake but it was kind of too late to do anything about it and I just continued working. Uh, we moved into a, a little flat and then purchased a house after we had our first child and um, I lived in St Kilda at the time and I wanted to have a child pretty much straight away because I thought that would make it all right and I really wanted something that I could have for myself because everybody else seemed to take everything I had but I figured if I had a child I could um, that would be mine and uh, that was a big mistake for me too because I just wasn't really cut out. I expected children to be perfect the same way as I'd been taught to be perfect in my home, you know, disciplined. And I had this squawking, screaming little baby that just wouldn't stop. And, and it was just really quite uncomfortable for me. I just didn't do it well at all. I could take care of her felt needs that she needed, feeding, clothing, all that stuff, but the rest of it. And of course, my marriage was wasn't going very well because it was under that dominance and so I thought if I had another baby that would again that would make it okay well that made it worse and then I had a breakdown a mental breakdown I had postnatal depression and I was in a real mess and I went into this I was put into this um, psychiatric hospital and I was in there for about four months and I had shock treatment every second day for I think about three weeks. And I just went into like a blackout. And, and I remember going home. I tried to uh, kill myself a couple of times when I'd gone home because I just couldn't cope with the whole situation as it was. Uh, hadn't started to drink at that point, but by the time I came out of that blackout, I had these two children. When I went in, my, my baby was seven months old in a high chair. And when I remember the next thing, she was at school in grade prep and I was working full time for the council and I was um, drinking by then alcoholically. But I do not know how I started that. I, I honestly have no idea how I started to drink in the way I was drinking. And obviously it had taken off and I was hiding behind it because it became a refuge for me where I could, I didn't have to think. Only the next day when I had a massive hangover. Yeah. So did your husband support you or not? No, not at all. He was, he was very, well, he, I used to have to hide the alcohol because he would never, he was one of these guys that could open a can of beer and have two sips and put it back into the fridge and, leave it for the next day, which I couldn't even imagine how people could do that. Uh, but I was hiding my booze under the house. I was ordering it and having it delivered and putting in flagons. I used to drink cheap sherry and, and put it under the house and hide it. And, and I only stayed in that marriage for nine years because my drinking was on show all the time there and violence had entered the marriage and I just had to get out of it because I just, well, I didn't know how to cope. That was how it sort of was. So, and then I married again to another guy who was an alcoholic and um, I took my children through, two children I had, and I took them through the, my, uh, my own personal hell. I took them with me and I paid a big price for that as the years went on. 
with the disease of alcoholism. Okay. Well, so we might leave leave you there. Um, mm -hmm. So, Jeff, how about you? How did how did your life progress through your twenties? Were you a seasoned I, drinker by then? I, I was. I, I, funny, I was just sitting here thinking. I, you know, by the time I was nineteen, I thought I had learned how to drink. I knew how to drink, and all that really meant was that I could drink at such a rate that it took a lot longer before I threw up or passed out. And um, and that was the illusion of control over my drinking. Um, drinking just sort of seeped into my life. I, I, I've just been sitting here thinking about it. it was I, I mean, I was um, drank pretty heavily at university, as a lot of people did. I um, I got involved in um, the capping concept, which is you know satirical review. It's like the um, the uni review over here, and um, I, I directed that, and I actually got paid in alcohol. You know, I just had an open uh, an open bar, so you know, alcohol was was you know had had successfully snuck into my life and was staying there. You know, I that I took a, a lot of drugs over that period as as well. You know, I experimented freely and with enormous enthusiasm. And I shifted up to Wellington from Dunedin, um, and I got a job in in television. I was working in production, and found a lot of people work as keen on drinking as I was and you know it was you know lunchtime drinks were, were not out of the ordinary and hitting the bar at 4.30 was not out of the ordinary either and closing the bar at 10.30 was not was you know was not an extraordinary day for me and um, you know it, it just went on like that at that round about by the time I was about 25 my partner at the time had expressed some concern about my drinking we both drank a lot but she felt that mine was out of control she took herself off to an Al-Anon meeting that was the first time I'd heard about Al-Anon she came home and patiently tried to explain to me that I certainly ticked a whole bunch of boxes on the way to becoming an alcoholic and my response to that even though I didn't it was an unconscious response was basically to get rid of it you know I, I basically moved on I did not want people in my life who were going to stand in my way and, and stop me drinking um, after that you know I found my way over to to Australia I'd, I had um, I'd become a scriptwriter by that stage or really as it turned out to be just a professional drinker who occasionally managed to get round to writing scripts because of course the thing about freelancing is that you are free and uh, and I was uh, a champion luncher you know I lunched on both sides of the Tasman usually um, if I could swing it at the expense of a, a friendly producer and and it was just you know alcohol was such a part of my life um, I loved it you know we you know me and my friends would swap um, hangover remedies, none of which ever involved not drinking, uh, and and it was you know, and I would make jokes about alcohol because I thought if I made jokes about it and I didn't hide it, then it meant I didn't have a problem. I was I was developing serious skills at uh, at deluding myself, and uh, yeah, I got to be pretty good at that, and that was pretty much you know that was pretty much how my twenties rolled out, you know. To, to such an extent that at one stage I ended up, you know, on a plane back in, I ended up back in Auckland with my writing partner who was as big a pissed as I was and we didn't know what country we were in. We rang someone up and said, when we get back to Auckland, and they said, I think you're actually in Auckland. And we went, yeah. are we? So, you know, and 
any other person might go, you know, maybe my drinking's out of getting a bit out of control, and I just thought, how good are we? You know, how cool are we? We can do this, get away with it, make a living, make a good living. You know, it was, it was, it was all on board, and as far as I could see, I was, you know, unstoppable. And, um, so, did it affect your work? Uh, not to begin with, but of course it, it creeps in and uh, and it stays there. You know, I did I didn't used to drink when I was writing, but of course you know there are drugs which are very attractive to you when you're writing, and uh, and I got into those quite a bit. And um, yeah, it, look, it it just I became increasingly unreliable. There was a, a producer over here in Melbourne, um, a famous comedy producer who said to me, look, you know, your stuff's really great, but we just never know what drugs you're going to be on when you come in here every day. And and that was pretty much the story of the end of my full-time proper professional life as a writer. Um, that, was the, that was the bottom line. You know, we like you, you're great, you're talented, but you're unreliable. We don't know, we don't know what state of mind you're going to be in. Yeah. So did that prompt you to sort of question your drinking? Oh, it, in an incredibly superficial way, um, I was wondering if I might have a problem with drinking. So I gave up drinking for a whole week uh, in 1981, I think it was, and and I only smoked an ounce of dope during that week. And I thought that this proved to me that I didn't have a problem with drinking because if I did, how could I possibly have gone for a whole week without a drink? You know, as I said, I was advanced at the art of self-deception and, and uh, it never occurred to me that smoking an ounce of dope sort of, you know, means that you're not really a sober person. You know, you may have put the drink down for a week, but that's it. So, yeah. So did, did you ever think of seeking help? No. No, quite frankly, because I didn't think there was a problem. And in spite of mounting evidence, you know, um, jobs disappearing, careers disappearing, uh, I, I just thought that the problem was other people. Um, you know, it's been a lifetime thing that the problem was other people. So, no, I didn't, I didn't seek help. Help started to, you know, crop up at the edges of frame and people were going, can you read that? Because I, I ended up working, you know, just in a in a warehouse, you know, um, for the last ten years of my drinking, and you know, people would give me pamphlets about, you know, offering me advice and suggesting that there was a local doctor who might be able to help me, and of course, I just threw them away because I thought, what what on earth are they on about? So no help help sought me, but I it wasn't the other way around. I, I was okay. running from it flat out. Okay, back to you, Christina. You, you said you got married a second time. So yep. was that was that a more supportive environment or was that more difficult? No, it was very difficult, actually. There was a lot of domestic violence involved in that relationship and it, it was very, very toxic, actually. And it was um, after seven years. I, I stayed in it for seven years. We were married for five and... It ended up becoming uh, so violent and I was the one that ended up on charges in the end from that uh, relationship and I had a uh, charge of attempted murder on me. And but, but, you know, the interesting thing was I never once thought it was the alcohol that was the problem. I think I said this before, you know, it was always everybody else. If everybody just understood me, it, this stuff wouldn't happen. But uh, it did, and I faced court over that. I was very fortunate that I worked with 
people in high places and they were very supportive of me with that support and everything. But um, after I left that marriage, I took off and went to the country and took my daughters with me. And that's when I think the last two and a half, three years of my drinking um, in Australia became absolutely toxic to me. I became a professional thief. I was just, just totally out of control. I think they say in AA, self will run right. Well, I think I wrote the book on that one, but there was nothing supportive at all. The only thing that really propped me up was the alcohol really in that situation. And sadly, I took my children through that and I have paid a big price for that in my life since. Okay. So having those charges against you and coming out of that, did your life stabilise a bit? Uh, no, not really. No, my life didn't stabilise for me actually until I, uh, I went to America. I got away from Australia because I had a, a lot of family issues going on here and I went to America. I honestly don't know how I did it, but I did. And I hit a rock bottom over there in alcoholism that I could not believe would have ever happened to me. And my stability came from that very first night I walked into the rooms of AA. And that was through a, a man who I'd met who was a sober member. And he invited me along to a meeting. And after a few weeks of people pleasing, saying, yes, I would, I finally did when I hit my own personal rock bottom. Okay. Well, listen, we might take another break there. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Christina and Jeff about recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Christina, before the show, we, we were talking and you, you mentioned that you were working with somebody who was in AA who tried to help you. So what was the influence of that person on your life? Uh, well, I was, I was working at the council and I met this, there was a girl working there and she was a member of AA and we were getting married at the time. I was marrying my second <clears throat> husband and she was getting married sober and I was getting married with alcohol. And it was just this, I couldn't believe how uh, somebody could actually have a wedding without uh, alcohol on it. But she used to wear the serenity prayer um, medal around her neck. And I always remember saying I'd love to learn that prayer one day because I was so taken with it and a few times she's I used to go in breathing alcohol all over and I knew it was terrible but she often used to talk about going to meetings but it also jogged a memory in me when I was a girl I read the book by uh, Lillian Roth I'll cry tomorrow and I think she was responsible for bringing AA here to Australia so yeah. I did that little bit of knowledge about AA, not a great deal. But um, then, as I said before, I went, after I left my second husband and I went to the country, I 
my husband, my first husband died and he'd been my prop uh, all the time. Whenever I got into trouble, he bailed me out financially with the kids and stuff like that. But when he died, I really was, I was sent into an absolute world of shock because my 14-year-old daughter had just had a baby and I was full-blown alcoholic and drug addict on fraud and deception charges. I was a total mess. And we came back to Australia, uh, sorry, we came back to Melbourne to organise funeral and so on and so forth. And I had a spiritual experience in all that. And that was in the September. He died in the May. And somehow or other, I stopped drinking. I don't know how, but I had had this spiritual experience and I did stop drinking. But I had a real psychotic episode in that. And I don't know if you ever knew a guy called Ray Lawrence, who was a DJ at 3MP, I think, at the time. And I was ringing around all these radio stations because I believe God was talking to me through the radio. I was really quite ratty and my daughters were trying to have me locked up. But this night by accident, I got onto a guy called Ray Lawrence and he was the first person in my whole life that ever gave me five minutes space to talk. And he listened to me and it was all about, I actually told him about the abusive life I'd had with violence and and um, sexual abuse and everything. And he was so gentle and kind to me and I drove him crazy. I used to ring him about a hundred times a day. And in the end, they asked me to stop ringing. One of them, I remember it so clearly, and he asked me to just buzz off. You're driving us crazy. And so I stopped. All I ever needed was that. I didn't ever, you know, I never wanted to be where I wasn't wanted. Anyway, I had this spiritual experience and then this was when it all started, this psychotic thing, and they were trying to have me locked up again and I was really afraid of falling into that other nervous breakdown. I actually wrote my way through that, but that's when I decided to go to America because I decided John Denver was waiting there for me to marry me over there so that's when I went (laughs) but I drank on the plane on the way over and that was a mistake after six months without a drink I went to a rock bottom there that I didn't even believe existed but I did because I found it so did you suffer from blackouts oh terrible blackouts but interestingly Bill I used to come out of these blackouts just long enough to see where I was and what I was doing Enough so that when I woke up the next day, I, I could remember and I was filled with the guilt and remorse and shame and everything that goes along with, with that horror that you do commit while you're drinking. It's, it's an awful life. A woman is an alcoholic. I, don't, I can't say what it's like for a man, but I know no, for me it's dreadful. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Um, so did anybody offer to help you? No, not really. No, no, not at all. I never got any offers of help whatsoever because I pretty much excluded myself away from everybody by then anyway. Okay. So were you doing drugs as well as alcohol? I was. I started out um, marijuana and ended up on heroin, speed, uh, not speed, um, cocaine, everything, anything I could get my hands on, I, I used. 
because I couldn't stand the, the insanity in my head. Right. How did you hear about AA? Like I said, originally through reading that book and then the next time was the lass I worked with at the council and then the, the last time was I was, I, I'd hit my bottom in America and I met a young man through a friend who was a, a three-year sober member and I said, when he said he was a member of AA, I told him that I thought I had a problem but I, I wasn't an alcoholic and he invited me to go to a meeting and told me the third tradition, which is the only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking. I didn't understand what that meant, but I, I'd learnt it off by heart. And, and he was the one that stepped up and invited me to meetings. So did you jump at that opportunity? Uh, three weeks later, yes. <laughs> <laughs> three weeks it took me to get the courage, but it was through... The last drink I had was on the 19th of July, 1986, and I, I was having a party and I was so gone, so insane in my head, I was too frightened to drink. So I bought some light ale, some can, half a dozen cans of light ale, and everybody else at the party was drunk. And I was sitting there drinking the sixth can of this stuff, and I just thought to myself, what am I doing drinking this stuff? I don't drink for the taste. I drink because I want to get drunk. And it was that moment that this light bulb moment we hear about in AA, and that's when I asked this guy the next day if he'd take me to a meeting the next day, and I, I went with him the next day. Okay. All right. Awesome. We might swap back to you, uh, Jeff. I think with you, you... Um, you you mentioned that you had a friend who was in AA. So was that an influence on you to consider AA? Yes, um, obviously it was, uh, I was prepared to listen to him. He, he had got in touch with me. Uh, we hadn't been in touch for years and, uh, and I was, I was at the, at the end, I was just coming out of a, uh, a long relationship with, a, with another addict and uh, she'd finally had enough of me and walked off. Uh, and so I was prepared to accept that there might, in fact, be some problems with my life. And he talked to me, he sent me, wrote me letters, he sent me tapes, and he arranged for people over here to ring me and try and get me to a meeting. So you were just asking Christina if she jumped at the opportunity, and I jumped too, but I jumped the other way. I, every time it got close, uh, and it happened before, somebody, you know, years before that had had offered to take me to a meeting after I had frightened myself by kicking in the door of a, a bottle shop that had opened, that had closed too early. And what happened there was two days later, she said, well, do you, you, know, do you want to go to this meeting? I said, oh, look, I've been thinking about it. There's really no problem. And that went on, you know, for, for years. So when my friend got in touch and, and sent all that stuff to me, he told me his story and that, as it turned out, that was about five years before I got sober. And, uh, and it's interesting because people never know what effect they're going to have. It didn't work at the time because I wasn't ready. When I became ready, when I finally fell over and, and got through the doors of AA, everything that he'd said to me was, was useful. He talked about how he'd felt and what he thought and, you know, before stopping and then after he got sober. So it was incredibly useful to me, you know, to, to have that sort of tucked away. It's sown the seeds, as it were. Yeah. So what, 
what brought you to the point of deciding to try AA? The, the universe stepped in basically and knocked me, to the, knocked me to the ground. They said, you're finished. You know, I lost, um, I'd been living in a caravan park for five years and I, I shifted out of there thinking that the answer lay elsewhere. I, and I ended up in a single week losing my job, you know, um, losing my job, losing the place I was living and, and damn near losing my mind. I, you know, had a drug overdose and a you know psychotic breakdown. I was talking to people from the cat team, and I was finally poured into some you know some part of the system where they where they found me a place in um, uh, in a emergency accommodation, a place run by the uh, the Salvation Army. It wasn't specifically a rehab, but that was you know you couldn't drink there, and it was a place of refuge I had nowhere else to go and that's pretty much where I was pushed into into AA I went to uh, um, I went to a rehab from there and um, so I mean it wasn't like I all of a sudden one day we you know what this has all got too much I'll go to AA I needed a big push I really did I needed to be kicked and I I boy was I kicked you know <laughs> Right. Uh, so what was it life like going to your first meeting? Did you sort of identify? My very first meeting uh, I found frightening, actually, to tell you the truth. It was, uh, uh, I don't know if it, it was the gallery. And, and I was in such a weird sort of physical and mental state that everything seemed much bigger than it really was. Like rooms with 10 people in them seemed like they had 60. And, and I remember this meeting as because it had a microphone, so all of a sudden it was like a big theatre. And and there were people basically telling me frightening stories, and um, I think I'd been sober for maybe three, four days at that stage. I, I was I didn't take much in, but, um, you know, I, and, and I felt a bit confronted. Uh, my second meeting was a completely different story. So what's it like today? What's, what's AA given you? Oh, look! At the risk of sounding like a, a brochure, it's given me a freedom that I that I didn't think was possible. You know, I didn't until I was able to stop drinking. I had no idea how much how I was enslaved. You know, like I couldn't. You know, my whole life revolved around could I get these drugs? How am I going to get you know the alcohol I need to get me through the day? How can I get the cigarettes? And and by the end, that was getting you know it was a full time job just you know ducking and diving and you know uh, it's, it's incredibly tiring it's it's a hard life and uh, so with that gone you know there's a freedom that that is you know to to just not you know I was such a heavy smoker for instance I was able to give up smoking you know reasonably early in sobriety and that's an incredible freedom it's a great life I've, I've uh, I haven't had a drink now for for 13 years my life has, as was promised to me, got better in ways that I couldn't have imagined before I got, before I got sober. You know, I, I, I had a job, I've retired now, but I had a job, uh, you know, I turned up every day, you know. I just, I became a person, I became a responsible human being and, um, and the feeling that it gives you is just really quite extraordinary, you know. To be just living properly was... Um, is and and has been and and still is just a wonderful thing. I'm I'm married to another sober alcoholic, and we've had a 
a very happy marriage for the last 12 years and you know it, it, life is manageable and life is good it's not it's not the spectacular you know uh, glittering prizes that i was so determined that i must have when i was in my 20s um but it is it's something so much better so yeah, yeah. it's a yeah. good life yeah the end of the roller coaster indeed yeah <laughs> i'm much less tired <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, back to you, Christina. So coming to your first meeting then, how did, how did it feel to talk to alcoholics about being an alcoholic? Uh, well, I, I was in great denial. I mean, I, I, the reality was when I walked into AA that night and I, I was in America, remember the meetings are very different. They had more topic meetings in a circle. But uh, I remember looking at the steps and seeing... The second step came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And that was the, the step that really got me because I was insane and I saw that there was another power which was God, which I'd always believed in for me. And so I grasped onto that. I felt really, really good about it. After the meeting, I had a bit of a conversation with people, but it was the second meeting I think that had the biggest effect because it was an anniversary meeting and that night over there they ask if anyone's attending their first second or third meeting since their last drink and uh, I put my hand up that night now I was a different person then I have since changed my name and become a different identity but I put my hand up and said my name and said like I had hadn't had a drink for 24 hours and the most amazing thing happened because it felt like this spotlight came down from the ceiling and shone on me and everybody was clapping and I felt like I suddenly had an identity. I felt like I was suddenly visible, which I'd always felt like I wasn't visible. And that, that had a very big impact on me. And I think I made the decision that night that I would be prepared to, to say I was a, a porpoise if I had to or a dinosaur to be able to go back there because those people treated me like I was someone, uh, a living human breathing uh, person that I hadn't ever felt like before. And it was just the most amazing feeling. So I made that commitment pretty much on those first two nights. And even though I couldn't even believe that first night, there was a guy who hadn't had a drink for two years and he was crying. And A, I didn't believe men had feelings because I hated them so deeply and he had to be lying because nobody could go without a drink for that long, you know. So it had a very big impact on me and I think the steps were my way of being able to put discipline and order into my life. At first it said that I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. Well, my life was unmanageable, but I didn't feel powerless over alcohol because I could go and buy it anywhere I wanted to. And I thought that was that meant having power over it. So it was a bit of a crazy time, but then I was a bit crazy person. Law and order came back into my life from that very first meeting. So what's it like now in, in AA and how's that improved your family life? Uh, it's it's fantastic for my life for myself it's it's been a very personal thing for me I have two daughters they're both addicted one of them to heroin the other one to alcohol and drugs but 
my second daughter hasn't spoken to me. Uh, first of all, it was 14 years. She came back for a couple and has been gone again for another 10 now. They just absolutely hate me with a passion. And I understand it. I take full responsibility for wrecking their lives because I did a terrible thing as a mother. And I hear other people, you know, saying how their daughters don't like them, and but they still have relationship with them. My family is really, it's... it's obsolete but I did raise two of my grandchildren and I have a relationship with them uh, the rest of my family I, my siblings I kept away from pretty much because I didn't want them to see all the shame and horror that I was living so they accept me quite well now actually as I've got older but my family life apart from my two grandchildren that I raised uh, and their children I have a relationship with, but the rest of it. Now, I've lost a lot in sobriety, actually. Um, and I think that was because when I was drinking, they could manipulate and, and do get whatever they wanted from me. And I had to really toughen up because I had no boundaries. I'm only just learning boundaries now. But I've been to university. I've raised grandchildren. I've done some amazing things. I've only just retired. I wanted to be a movie star or a a nun when I was young. When I got sober, I had to ask myself what I wanted to do now that I'd had a life. And so I went and did acting lessons, which was an absolute failure from the beginning. I went and did professional writing and editing. And I do that quite well, actually. I have a book published. And, and I went and did university and became a chaplain. So I pretty much sought what I wanted to do. And even though I'm retired now, I, I still work as a chaplain, with, with mainly with people that are dying of cancer. And that I owe all of that to AA. I, I honestly, from that very first moment I walked into AA and saw those steps and traditions, it put order into my life. It became the cornerstone of my living. I don't care if people don't like me. I don't care if my kids don't want anything to do with me. I love me today and that is a gift from AA. And I have got a horrible story that's taken me into the gutter and back, but today I love myself. Today I forgive myself and I owe that to the program of AA. Okay. If anybody's out there who'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, then you can phone them on 1300 222 or you can go online at aa.org.au and get more information and details of local meetings. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Christina and Jeff for coming into the 3CR studio and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us today. Thank you both. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, Jeff. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Christina. It was great to hear you. That was terrific. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from drug addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Narconics Anonymous. Thanks for listening and stay tuned now for a new show called Alternative, hosted by Robbie. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. Yeah.